Hello and welcome to Talking Tudors, a fortnightly podcast about the ever-fascinating Tudor dynasty. My name is Natalie Gruniger and I'll be your host and guide on this journey through 16th century England. Are you ready to step through the veil of time into the dazzling and dangerous world of the Tudor court? Without further ado, it's time to talk Tudors. everyone, welcome to Talking Tudors, episode 173, and the sixth installment of all things 16th century women. I'm your host, Natalie Gruniger. Thank you so much for joining me today. Throughout August and September, we'll be exploring the lives of 16th century women through a series of podcast episodes here on Talking Tudors and video lectures, which are published on my YouTube channel. So be sure to subscribe. While all the content is free, I ask that you consider supporting the event by becoming a Talking Tudors patron. Visit patreon.com slash Talking Tudors for more information. When you join the Talking Tudors patron family, you will receive lots of Tudor-themed goodies and have access to patron-only monthly giveaways. September's prize is a one-year subscription to Tudor Places magazine. You can find out more about them at TudorPlaces.com. All patrons are also eligible to attend monthly Talking Tudors live talks, which take place on Zoom. These events are exclusive to patrons. On the weekend of the 17th and 18th of September, I'll be chatting to novelist and screenwriter Robin Maxwell about her many books and work. Head to Patreon for all the details. You can also support the podcast and share your love of Tudor history with the world by buying Talking Tudors merchandise. There are a number of designs and products available, including phone cases, mugs, notebooks and apparel. Check out all the products at talkingtutors.threadless.com. I would love to see pics of you wearing or using your Talking Tutors merch, so please do tag me on social media and use the hashtag #ILoveTalkingTutors. Now, on to today's episode. I am so excited that joining me on the show to talk about Elizabeth I and global connections is Professor Nandini Das. Nandini Das is a professor of early modern English literature and culture at Oxford University, fellow of Exeter College and honorary professor of English literature at the University of Liverpool. Exploring both literature and cultural history, she has published widely on Renaissance literature and cross-cultural encounter. Her next book on the first English embassy to India will be out with Bloomsbury in 2022. A BBC New Generation thinker, she regularly presents television and radio programs, most recently on the BBC's The Berlin's Scandalous Family and Art That Made Us series. Our conversation's coming up straight after this short musical break, courtesy of guitarist John Sayles.
welcome to all things 16th century women. Nandini, how are you? I'm very well, thank you. It's really lovely to join you for this conversation, Natalie. Oh, I'm so excited. I've been really looking forward to this. So I, I think a good place to begin is maybe you just introducing yourself to our listeners and just telling us a little bit about you and your background. Sure, I can do that. Hi, everyone. And thanks for listening and joining us for this conversation. My name is Nandini Das. I am a professor of early modern literature and culture at the University of Oxford and fellow of Exeter College at Oxford. I work mainly on 16th and 17th century travel and cross-cultural interaction. Started off working on romances and quests of knights led me, led me to this very different kind of adventure where, you know, long before the empire, you had really intense kind of contact between England and the world, despite England's kind of growing sense of its insularity in some ways. Wonderful. And we are going to talk about Elizabeth I, which we both love, and some of those global connections. So what were the main reasons behind Elizabeth's enthusiasm for exploration and, of course, colonization as well? Well, enthusiasm is probably a loaded word when it comes to Elizabeth. She was terribly enthusiastic about the revenue that the exploration and colonization might bring into the country because the English monarchs were constantly cash-strapped and Elizabeth more than any others, particularly in the second half of her reign when the Spanish threat was mounting and so much of her finances were just simply feeding into a ways of bolstering that defense of the country. But the one thing that English merchants constantly grumble about in their letters, in their petitions, sometimes directly to Elizabeth herself, is about her lack of enthusiasm compared to some of her close contemporaries, compared to, say, Philip II, compared to actually to the Venetians, the French, the Dutch, the Portuguese, the Spanish. The English monarch was notoriously reluctant to essentially to put her money where her mouth was in terms of exploration and travel. That is really interesting. So in saying that, what, what kind of trading networks did Elizabeth establish during her reign? That's, that's a really interesting question, actually, because the whole idea is slightly more complicated than simply establishing a trading network. What England had to do in this at this point was try to find ways of getting cheaper foreign luxury exports, which the English market really wanted, but at the same time, find places, or as English merchants would put it, find vents for English wool. You know, this is a country that produced a lot of very high quality wool, and that needed to be sold somewhere. So for Elizabethan traders and merchants, their tentacles, trade tentacles, if we can call that, went a very long way. There were some merchants who were already dealing with uh, lands as far as Russia. Elizabeth had letter exchanges, correspondence exchanges with her Russian counterpart, the, the Tsar at the time. On the other hand, she was also having exchanges of correspondence and requests for trading licenses with Morocco, with the Ottomans. There were little noises being made among the merchant community about how it might be a good idea to suss out the trade route to Mughal India, although this that didn't happen till almost the very end of her reign. 
And if we think, Nandini, about some specific things, I like hearing all about the the sort of nitty gritty of it all in terms of food and fashion and, you know, architecture at the time in the Elizabethan world. What were some of those main global cultural influences on some of those things? Okay, so let's think about it in kind of in concentric circles, spreading out from the little island of England and spreading further and further around the world. The closest, of course, is Europe, continental European fashion and art and music and tastes. You only have to think about Tudor portraits. Okay, let's test this, Natalie. If I ask you to imagine, close your eyes and imagine a Tudor portrait, any Tudor portrait, what comes to mind? Oh, I just pictured Henry VIII when you said that, (laughs) of course, the the stance, the wide leg. Yes. I mean, it's iconic, isn't it? That image of Henry kind of arms akimbo, legs astride in a power pose. That's what we think about when we think about the Tudors. But those images are made by immigrant artists. So much of what we imagine of the Tudor world is visualized for us by immigrant artists. There was that huge influx of continental European influence. And then if you think about what they wore and at any given moment, if you happen to be, you know, have happen to be one of those lucky Tudor citizens with a little bit of cash to spend, and you thought, I know what I'll do this afternoon. I'm going to walk down that fancy new royal exchange that Thomas Gresham has made um, to rival the Boers of Antwerp. So there's a little bit of, you know, keeping up with the neighbors going on there, as far as England is concerned. And I'm going to go to the top floor of the Royal Exchange and have a look at the shops. You could probably buy things from fairly large expanse of the known globe. Walking down a street in late Elizabethan London, you'd probably be likely to meet someone wearing fur from Northern America. You would see people with pipes smoking tobacco. That's an influence that is coming in. Um, In your next door neighbor's house, if you're an affluent Londoner, you might see a turkey carpet on the table. Too expensive to put on the floor, of course. So you had it on the table. You would see fancy new little toys or scientific instruments that have been brought in from the great trade fairs in Germany. You'd have Dutch woodcuts and engravings. So there's a huge influx of various different kinds of cultural exchange that is defining what Englishness means. In fact, kind of running joke throughout the Elizabethan period is that the English man actually has no identity. So if you started stripping him off all those foreign borrowings, you'd end up with a man who's very, very naked. What an excellent analogy. Yeah, that's really interesting. And now, Nandini, earlier you you mentioned, of course, being a little bit cash-strapped because of the, the tensions, the ongoing tensions with Spain at the time. So can you talk a little bit more about these tensions between Elizabeth I and Philip II of Spain? I mean, Philip, of course, had met Elizabeth when she was very, very, very young during his short kind of sojourn in England. And Partly his memory perhaps is of that 20-something Elizabeth by the time Elizabeth comes to the throne, undefended to some extent and cornered. But over the reign of 
Elizabeth herself as queen, relationships between the Iberian Empire, relationships between Philip and Elizabeth get increasingly strained. There's a long history behind that of straightened relationships since Henry VIII's time and the whole kind of baggage of the Boleyn legacy that Elizabeth carries with her. She is, after all, the troublemaker's daughter. But there are bigger problems, and partly many of those bigger problems are associated with religion. So in terms of the the Protestant Catholic rift, Elizabeth becomes increasingly the figurehead for the militant Protestants, essentially, within Europe. But what also makes this crisis, I think, a particularly long-running one is increasing English ambitions abroad as well beyond Europe. So the English, once they start going into Northern America, are constantly, constantly coming across Spanish ships and making trouble for them. They are constantly posing as the rational Protestant kind of counterpoint to the terrible atrocities that have been unleashed by the Spanish on the Northern American continent. And the Spanish don't take kindly to that either. So there are multiple levels at which that relationship between the two um, monarchs are problematized in this period. Yes, and and of course they're not. The, there's another relationship that's quite tense in this story, and that of course is the Anglo-Scottish relations as well. So, oh if yes, we think about Elizabeth's reign. What are things like at that point between England and Scotland? Well, let's put it this way: when Elizabeth comes to the throne, um, Mary, Queen of Scots, is married to Henry the Second, King of France's son, Francois. And Henry orders his gentlemen um, that as Mary enters the chapel to pray, um, they should all cry, make way for the Queen of England. So that is a big problem. That is a big problem. For Elizabeth. You know, this is this is a problem because, particularly because Mary Stuart, Queen of Scotland, is the legitimate granddaughter of Henry VIII's sister, Margaret Tudor. So compared to Elizabeth's messy history, that would put any kind of contemporary real life reality TV show to shame. Mary actually has a fairly clean line of succession from Henry VIII. That makes her a major threat. What doesn't help is that Mary's own kind of situation in Scotland is also pretty turbulent throughout this period. So she's constantly looking for assurance in some way or the other, when particularly when Francois dies and she's left a dowager queen with no other identity, essentially, and she's desperate to build up relationships. She becomes a little bit of a loose cannon for Elizabeth. So Elizabeth is constantly dealing quite warily with Mary right from this point onwards. Walsingham is watching Mary's every move very, very carefully. There is a point, for instance, where, and this this is where we kind of complete that triangle. There's a point where in the 1560s, Mary is looking for a new husband. And there's news in England that maybe that potential new husband might be Don Carlos, who's the son of Philip II of Spain. Oh my goodness, that's not good news for Elizabeth at that point. So you know, and at that particular point, Elizabeth does not hide her displeasure with that possibility. Of course, it comes to nothing. But Mary is, you know, deeply responsible for, I guess, for Elizabeth's blood pressure rising at any given moment throughout this period. 
That's so true, isn't it? That's an amazing story. And just, I don't mean to put you on the spot, Nandini, but I've spoken to lots of different historians and academics and and they all have a slightly different interpretation of Elizabeth's, you know, the role she played in Mary, Queen of Scots's execution, I suppose you can say. What's your take on, on just, just quickly, what's your take on that sort of end to Mary, Queen of Scots? You know what? Um, Elizabeth was a very, very canny PR person. Um, if there's one thing that she knew really well, it was about the power of public perception and that image of a monarch, a divinely anointed monarch being beheaded is not a good look mm. in any monarchy. Um, so I think personally, she was and she would be, she would have every reason to resist that. But by that point, both due to the pressure of her own Privy Council and because of the kind of conflation of influences around Mary Queen of Scots. She's put in a position where she has no option but take the short-term view rather than thinking, worrying about the precedent it might set for the future in that sense. And that's partly also, I think, the reason for her absolute obsession with the idea, this the image of Richard II. Another image that she keeps coming back to that haunts her, this idea of a monarch being dethroned, of sovereignty being challenged. This is a woman who had spent an entire career creating an image of herself as this untouchable sovereign. So anything that exposes the vulnerability of the human body and the human neck under the ruff and the gown and the aura is dangerous for her. When I was doing, Nandini, a little bit of research into just Elizabeth and global connections and the Elizabethan court and the, the kind of wider world, I kept coming up with this phrase, kept coming up of Elizabeth's sea dogs. Um, so in case our listeners haven't heard of her sea dogs before, can you tell us a little bit about who they were and what was their particular function? Sea dogs is an interesting term, isn't it? Because again, there's so much latent Elizabethan power behind that. You know, it's like unleashing the dogs of war that Shakespearean phrase comes to mind. But basically, we're talking about the great Elizabethan sailors, the mariners and adventurers like Walter Raleigh, Francis Drake, the names that seem very familiar to us now in terms of Elizabethan exploration. Again, the story behind it goes back to that very fundamental force moving the world, which is money, Natalie. Elizabeth is in a position where she cannot keep a standing navy and maintain a standing navy for significant amounts of time. We see that during in the crisis in the 1580s, particularly building up to the Armada, where even little fishing boats are essentially co-opted into naval service. The other thing is that Elizabeth doesn't want to kind of engage in face-to-face -face encounters with the Spanish. But what she can do is give independent mariners or ships the license to pillage. She can try, essentially turn a blind eye in that case because they are still independent entities, essentially. They're not part of an English Navy, so to say. And that's what she does. So the sea dogs that she lets loose on the great kind of ocean um, and in, in terms of maritime trade are the people like Raleigh, Elizabeth's you know, favorite water, as she calls him quite often, are people who go out with the very view that they are going to explore potential trade routes. But on the way, 
if they happen to cross paths with particularly with Spanish ships, well, that's extra reason for stopping and so to say refueling, isn't it? <laughs> and there is, of course, this huge debate that runs throughout this period right into James I of England, James VI of Scotland's reign, about what happens to pillaging and property at sea. You know, land, you can understand, land is owned by monarchs and you cannot encroach beyond the borders of um, one monarch if you happen to be the sovereign of another nation, because that's a direct kind of attack. But where do you draw those borders on sea? And what happens when a ship is attacked or shipwrecked or anything like that? Who has the rights to it? Those questions start kind of um, simmering under that, the background of Elizabethan seafaring right from the very beginning. And Elizabeth and her Privy Council are really good at exploiting them. Yes, and I'm just thinking it's so in return, Nandini, for, for allowing them this independence to go sort of out and pillage. I'm imagining that she she gets quite a bit in return as well. So do Oh, they she gets back? a cut. <laughs> yeah, she gets a cut. <laughs> so she gets money, but she also gets goods as well. I imagine that if, you know. Taken Absolutely. From- so yeah. she would, both Elizabeth and her Privy Council would get first dibs, essentially, on the treasures that are captured from these ships. And those treasures could range from anything from spices coming from the spice islands of Indonesia through the trade routes to the silver from the silver mines of Mexico to wonderful Chinese porcelain that are being, um, you know, imported through those global trade routes. So in Hatfield House, for instance, there's a moment where you have a great Chinese porcelain dinner service that is framed in silver and brought out to entertain the Queen. Um, In recent years, there's been quite a bit of work done, some excellent work done on the Elizabethan connection with the Islamic world, which I think is quite fascinating. So I know this is very sort of complex and big issue, but can you give us a little taste of that connection, perhaps? So when we think about global politics in this period. If you're thinking about it from Europe or from an English perspective, we think about global or the the powers being Iberian, Spanish and Portuguese with their imperial, imperial kind of influence and tentacles stretching right across the oceans to the new world. But of course, if you think about the entire globe and if we imagine the global geopolitics and trade routes in that period. For centuries before that, there's already been a trade route with the Middle East that has been you know, tapped by Venetian trade and by Italian trade primarily in the earlier period, and then by the Spanish. And those kind of trade routes focus on multiple Middle Eastern Islamic superpowers in this period. You have the Ottomans, they are by far the, the major entity right on the doorstep of Europe in terms of maritime kind of conflict and attack. There's a moment you'll remember, of course, in you know that Shakespeare pulls on in Othello, where Othello is brought into action by Venice because of an Ottoman attack. And there's a little kind of wordplay on Othello and Othello. Ottoman, which seems to suggest that these two figures are not so different after all, make of that what you will. So the Ottomans are very much in the mental landscape of Englishmen and of the English queen in this period. There's also Morocco, so Northern Africa, where you have that really kind of rich crossing of 
on the one hand, the Indian Ocean and Red Sea trade and the Mediterranean trade. So you have Morocco, but you also have the Persians, the Safavid Empire of Persia in modern day Iran, and then you have the Mughal Empire in northern India. So these Shia and Sunni Islamic empires among themselves control the lion's share of global trade. That is a huge entity for any European monarch in this period. Elizabeth actually comes into that exchange slightly later than others. It takes a lot of poking and prodding by London merchants who are getting really worried about losing that Eastern trade completely. So it's the London merchants who essentially prod her into sending William Harborn who is also a London merchant, a Turkish-speaking London merchant, as her ambassador to Istanbul, to Constantinople, as the English would still insist on calling it, uh, to try to negotiate trading licenses. And from the middle of Elizabeth's reign till the end of Elizabeth's reign, you have multiple trading companies that crop up. You only have to think about the names of those to realize the influence of those Islamic empires. You have the Turkey Company, the Levant Company, the East India Company. These are huge influences. And of course, the other thing, again, I think we keep coming back to this, is the question of money and profit. If you're dealing with continental middlemen, it means that you're paying double the rates of taxes and you're paying double markups. So aside from any Protestant or national pride, there's a real financial impetus behind the London merchants' interest in the Islamic empires and building up those connections and in Elizabeth's interest. And on top of that, the ever-looming presence of Spanish, of the Spanish threat and the possibility that you could perhaps influence the Middle Eastern European um, uh, kind of relationships by making really studied and deliberate connections with certain forces. So Elizabeth at one point has prolonged exchange with the Moroccan Sultan, trying to see whether there could be an Anglo-Moroccan alliance against Spain. So you have that perfect kind of combination of financial and political and military kind of impetus. Yes, I was going to say, I hear a recurring theme here, Nandini, of money and profit and power, and now obviously protection in that that last case. So let's move back a little bit closer to home in terms of Elizabeth's home. So can you tell us a little bit about what Elizabeth's relationship was like with Ireland? I feel like it's another very tense relationship here. Um, It is very much a tense relationship. You know, um, when we think about English or later British imperialism and colonial history, we tend to think about the influence that England had across the seas in the country I come from, from India, for instance, or in the US, in Northern American colonies. But Elizabethan governors, Elizabethan adventurers, soldiers and merchants try their hand at that settling and colonization business, first and closer to home in Ireland. What they also realize is that it is an expensive endeavor. The Irish resistance to English influence is as kind of firm in some ways, as um, bitter as the English hope of imposing and crushing that resistance. So you have repeated kind of moments of crisis 
for instance, and many of those names that sound really familiar to us from Elizabeth's history. So you have to think about Sir Philip Sidney, the ultimate Elizabethan courtier. His father is sent to Ireland to try to bring it under English rule. If you think about Edmund Spencer, the writer of The Fairy Queen, of course, his career beyond his kind of identity as a poet is very much embedded in Ireland. Those moments when his knights, his kind of representations of the different virtues of the perfect gentleman come into contact with barbarous and savage figures in the woodlands, have Ireland looming behind them um, implicitly. And then, of course, later on, there is the Earl of Essex and his disastrous campaign. Nandini, would you would you call it a, a golden age, this period of Elizabeth? I think it is, but I think perhaps that needs to be annotated. And as a literary scholar, annotation comes naturally to us, <laughs> I suppose, to me, by the caveat that a golden age doesn't necessarily mean an absence of darkness or violence. It's a golden age of English encounter with the world. It's a golden age of creativity, but it is also a country in crisis in multiple ways and multiple ways that resonate with us now. You know, in the 1590s, when Elizabeth is entering the last decade of her reign, you have undergraduates at Oxford and Cambridge um, kind of lamenting the state of learning. And you have undergraduates at Cambridge writing plays about jobless undergraduates and about learning being under threat. These are conversations we're still having now. At the same time in the parliament, at the Houses of Parliament in 1594, you have really kind of fraught debates about immigration where Rowley is screaming vituperating about these pesky foreigners who have dared to call England their home, and they're taking revenue away from the English. On the other hand, you have the defenders of immigration within the Houses of Parliament pointing out, actually, those pesky foreigners bring in a lot of foreigners' investment and skills to the country. Beyond England, in the same period, you have violence being wrought on the west coast of Africa, to Northern America. So I think the light of that golden age comes at a cost. And it's always worth remembering both sides of that story. Before I start bringing this to a close, are there any other links that perhaps I haven't asked you about that you you feel that you'd, you'd like to mention? Any other connections, global connections is what we've been discussing? Well, the one that we haven't talked about, um, perhaps, is the initial connections with India. And that's one that, you know, I have a vested interest in because of my own origins, because of the deep kind of mark that Anglo-English contact with India has left on the subcontinent. But that story starts in the 1580s when the London merchants decide that if the Queen isn't going to invest in this enterprise, this Indian enterprise, they are going to send a ship themselves. And they do. So you have this first kind of voyage, funded voyage, reach India in 1583 in the city, the port city of Goa in 1583. But at that point, you already have an Englishman 
who was resident in India. And his story, again, is one that I've been fascinated with over a decade, a man called Thomas Stevens, whose story is very much caught up in that earlier story we were talking about, the tension between Protestantism and Catholicism, between in terms of religious rifts, in terms of rifts between the continent and England, because he is an English Catholic who escapes from England, goes to Catholic Europe, trains as a Jesuit priest, and then finds his way to India. And there, 50 years before Milton's great Protestant biblical epic is written, Thomas Stevens, this Catholic Englishman, writes the first English epic, biblical epic, but in an Indian language, Marathi, called the Krista Purana. So for me, that those glimpses into those fragmented lives of Englishmen wandering across national and linguistic divides is very much central to what I'm interested in in this period. Elizabeth is, in a way, a figurehead of that huge hive of activity that is going on. Nandini, thank you so much for sharing your expertise with us, your time. You've certainly given us a lot to think about, and I imagine that many of our listeners are now wanting to find out more about you and your work. So where can they go to do that? Well, I've written fairly extensively on travel in various ways, but the one that I'm most excited about is a book that's coming out next year called Courting India from Bloomsbury. Um, and that's about the first English embassy to India. But apart from that, you know, in terms of wider kind of thinking about travel and travel writing, although it is a rather hefty volume, the Cambridge History of Travel Writing, which I co-edited with Tim Youngs a couple of years ago, is still one of my very favorite projects. But we were talking also, Natalie, about fragmented lives and those wider connections. Over the last six years, I've been very much involved in a project called TIDE, Travel, Transculturality and Identity in Early Modern England. And the great thing about this particular project was that because it was funded, the publications from that project are all open access. And that means they are free to read online rather than having to either buy them or pay for them or order them from a library. So if your listeners want to go to www.tideproject.uk, there are handy links to many of those publications, including some of those wonderful stories of people like Thomas Stevens, whom I've mentioned in our conversation just now. Fantastic. And I have spoken to two of your wonderful colleagues on the podcast before. So I will also link to that episode because they also shared those stories of of lesser known people and those fragmented lives. So and I'll put links to everything you've discussed. And I'm very excited for your new book, Nandini. That's really exciting. Um, And once again, thank you so much for taking part in all things 16th century women and just for coming on and sharing your, you know, your obvious passion and expertise with us. Thank you so much. It was such fun talking to you. Well, that brings us to the end of this episode of Talking Tudors. Thank you so much for joining us. I absolutely love to hear from listeners, so if you have any comments or suggestions or just want to say hi, please get in touch with me via my website, www.onthetudortrail.com, where you'll also find show notes for today's episode. If you've enjoyed the show, please share the podcast with friends and family, and don't forget to subscribe, rate, and review. I also invite you to join our Talking Tudors podcast group on Facebook, 
where you can interact with other Tudor history lovers and hear all the behind-the-scenes news. You'll also find me on Twitter. My handle is on the Tudor Trail and on Instagram as the most happy 78. It's time now for us to re-enter the modern world. As always, I look forward to talking Tudors with you again very soon. Music